This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. This virus is taking a heavy toll. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. Stay at home means stay at home. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hi, I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. And this is the Party Room podcast. We have a lot to talk about, Fran. Some huge news this week, largely out of Victoria, but having a huge impact on the country. That's for sure, PK. Businesses forced to close, stay-at-home orders, a nighttime curfew, soldiers roaming the streets and the harshest peacetime limits on freedom of movement. This is Melbourne in the second wave of this COVID-19 pandemic. I never thought I'd be celebrating the fact that streets were empty and that people were not going to work. Uh, but this is what we have to, have to do. It's painful, it's challenging, it's very difficult. But it is the only strategy that we have It's the advice of the experts and it is what we believe will drive case numbers down. That's Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews. And PK, your hometown really got clobbered by the virus this week and that's having social impacts, as we were discussing last week, but also now very real and dramatic economic and even political impacts. Huge impacts, Fran. And, in fact, they've been detailed by the Prime Minister in terms of the massive economic hit they'll have. We're going to get into the details in a second about that economic hit. But ultimately, let's just go through some of the changes that were introduced by Daniel Andrews over the weekend. Stage four, uh, it was largely expected that we were going to need to go to stage four because the numbers were just not coming down at the level that the government wanted. They said if we stayed in that stage three mode, it would take six months to get anywhere and six months was seen as just too long, having too big an impact. But as you say, a nighttime curfew of 8pm, a permit to allow you to travel the streets or be a permitted worker, which has been confusing. Also 250,000 workers being pulled out of work and being asked not to work in the next phase in other industries, including retail, which was spared in the other lockdown. So the economic impact of this phase is much bigger. And that's why it's been uh, felt very much by the federal government and also the national economy and some big announcements by the Prime Minister uh, in relation to just how much it's going to cost, outlining that the additional restrictions, and I say additional, uh, and that being stage four, are going to cost the federal economy, GDP, seven to $9 billion. And if you count stage three as well, um, that's 10 to $11 billion. That's huge, right? That's enormous. That's a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, just two weeks ago, we were talking about the um, Melbourne lockdown costing about $3 billion, the economy. This is four times that. Yeah, and you can't underestimate what a big deal that is for the way that the, the country rebuilds in this in this phase. It's going to be enormous. And the the you know, the state premier in Victoria and the federal government have been working very closely together in relation to all of this. The the kind of unity around this has been strong because it has so many implications. What's really key here too is the the kind of considerations around unemployment because 
The Prime Minister has also revealed that the official unemployment rate is expected to head back up to 13%. That's huge again. And that again is a result of this Victorian specific shutdown and you know everything that that leads to. So yes, we have a very real-time health crisis going on in Victoria and this week uh, the highest numbers we've seen on the daily rate. Um, just when we thought maybe, maybe the numbers are still bouncing around, but maybe that the trend might shift a really high day where it was over 700 again, just demonstrating how difficult it is to get this virus under control. Uh, And then this economic fallout, which is going to be ugly. And you have to have unity between the state premier and the the prime minister. And that that's really what I want to think, I think we need to talk about too, how well that unity is going. You know, the national cabinet. On the face of it, it seems to be holding together still publicly. Dan Andrews and, and the prime minister, Scott Morrison, seem to go out of their way to talk about how they're working closely together. They've been on the phone all night, all that sort of thing. And they are. Uh, that is, you know, that's not just sort of a public image. It's very true. The Prime Minister and the Premier, Daniel Andrews, exchange constant texts. Their officials are constantly talking. Their relationship is strong. The consultation even over stage four was high. Commonwealth officials and the Prime Minister advised about every element. So there wasn't a lack of, uh, you know, a relationship is still strong. And I think the Prime Minister has rightly made the determination that he needs to keep that relationship strong because he's the Prime Minister of the country and Victoria is the second biggest state. Uh, he's responsible too for Victorians. This is, you know, Daniel Andrews is not the Prime Minister of Victoria. So I think that's important. Oh, no, and make no mistake about it, you know, the, the federal government has had been called in and will be called in more with that $12 billion. They need to do everything they can to try and, uh, you know, offset that. For instance, they've been called in already to fund the childcare uh, sector so it doesn't collapse under the stage of the lo- uh, strain of the lockdowns. And there'll be more, I'm sure. There's pressure on them to give cash grants to businesses in Victoria. So this has real implications and engagement for the federal budget and therefore the federal government. It does. And and on that childcare system, under stage four, for those who aren't across this, even childcare um, is now essentially shut down, apart from for permitted workers in extreme circumstances. So really, it's very much requires a higher level of uh, participation and restriction than the other phase. And that has huge implications. So ultimately, we've got a situation now where the economy is getting belted at a much more extreme level. And it's six weeks, but that's, that's you know, the best case scenario. It could go on. And at the end of the six weeks doesn't mean you go back to stage one, does it? Uh, you might go back to stage three. We don't know what that looks like yet. We have no idea. In fact, every day they're making decisions that are changing because we've never done this before. So to make these predictions is really difficult and that's why I think these economic figures have had to be revised. But I just want to say on the federal relationship that while the Prime Minister, and I think politically he's made the right call, which is that he needs to stay in good communication and have a good relationship with the Victorian Premier to keep this this show on the road, you know, to keep this relationship going. I know that Victorian MPs that I've spoken to are really frustrated by that. And I'll tell you why. They think Daniel Andrews has bungled this. They think this is, you know, why they'll tell me, why isn't this happening anywhere else? It's because the Victorian government's made the mistake originally with hotel quarantine. And they think by the Prime Minister being so close to Daniel Andrews or or having that public appearance, it means that they have to share the blame. And they have told him, even some of them, they want Daniel Andrews to carry 
to carry the political responsibility here and it not to be shared. So there are tensions and there is some pressure on the Prime Minister to make, you know, to draw that line on political responsibility for what's happened in Victoria. Now, he's already kind of gone there in some ways by saying the Victorian wave and other things. Like, that's all sort of pointed to that. But he pulls himself back, you'll notice, Fran. I mean, I notice it. He pulls himself back because he's trying to also unify. It's a really interesting tension. Yeah, I mean, you can see sometimes him him resisting the political instincts to sort of try and hang this around uh, state Labor government's neck, and he's not doing that, and he's not doing that because, A, it's not the appropriate time or thing to be doing, and the public wouldn't like it at all, and it would be counterproductive for sure. But you can see the political temptation there amongst those Victorian uh, MPs you've been speaking to. But while certainly the um, the Victorian bungling of the quarantine hotel quarantine, it seems like that is where this all began. Um, therefore, the Victorian government does you know need to carry a lot of the blame when it's time to be handing out blame in this, which is not the time now. But the federal government too, you know, is under some pressure because it's responsible for some elements of the response. For instance, paid pandemic leave. You know, there's been calls from Labor and from the unions and business shipping in two for the government, federal government, to get in ahead of this virus, the march of this virus across the nation and and pay for paid pandemic leave. So that would mean that people weren't doing what we know they've been doing in Melbourne, which is going into work when they're sick because they can't afford to take time off because they're casual workers, they don't have sick leave. Um, and there's been calls for the federal government to get ahead of this so this doesn't spread, this temptation and this behaviour doesn't spread through the rest of the country. The government has come on board with paid pandemic leave in Victoria only. Is it too little too late, PK? Look, I think uh, I will have to say on balance, yes. I think it's great that they've now announced something, so they should be given credit for for coming to this. But this has been uh, called for for a really long time. I remember interviewing the Industrial Relations Minister, Christian Border, at the beginning of the crisis and raising these issues with him and him saying he doesn't believe people would go to work um, under any circumstances, even if they were casual. I remember that. I've forgotten that. Yeah. I reckon I wanted to mention it because it just shows how out of touch that was as an assessment of people's behaviour to what we've seen. 800 people were not at home when door knocked this week in Victoria. 800 people, Fran. 800 people with COVID-19. They knew they were positive. 800, have I said yeah. it enough times? I'm trying yeah. to make the point. Um, um, this is like deliberate um, repetition because I think that that demonstrates that this fallacy that people will, you know, do the right thing. Do the right thing what? When you've got sort of a financial um, imperative and you've got family to feed, all of that sort of stuff. Or there's other reasons too. I can't say all of those 800 were out, out of the house for those reasons. They could have been doing all sorts of things. But it demonstrates that human behaviour is volatile, it's unpredictable, and you have to plan for it, or you see what's happened in Victoria. So yes, Scott Morrison announced this $1,500 pandemic leave disaster payment, disaster being the key word here, Fran, because uh, it's, it's you know, you, you can only get it if you're a, declared a state of disaster like Victoria is. What does that mean? Well, 
if you're in Queensland, it's not a state of disaster, is it? So it really limits who can get it. Well, that's true. And not just this, it's the size of the payment as well. The federal government's capped it for uh, Melbournians who can apply for it or Victorians who can apply for it at $1,500 for that fortnight that you'd have to be off in isolation if you were positive or or forced into quarantine. Um, But, you know, that's a lot less. As the AC2U Secretary Sally McManus points out, that's half the average wage. So it's still very tempting. There's a lot of pressure on people to go to work if they're going to be get paid a lot more than $750 a week. So there are calls still, and I think Labor will definitely keep on this case for this national for this pandemic leave to be rolled out early, to be rolled out nationally, and to be something other than a payment where you have to ring up a hotline, register, and then get your $1,500 check. I think that pressure will keep uh, coming to bear on the government. They've said very clearly to me um, that they don't think that they want to go any further, that they want it to be limited. Uh, that they want to deal with the immediate Victorian disaster, as they call it, but they don't want to entrench a new scheme into the system. That's their current position. But we've seen current positions change again when the political pressure changes. And I think this government has been responsive to pressure. Just think about the fact that we have JobKeeper. Uh, I mean, mm. at the beginning again of the crisis, they were saying they didn't want a job subsidy, uh, a subsidy scheme in terms of wages. What they wanted was just a higher unemployment rate when they doubled job seeker, and yet they, you know, relented on that. So they do shift. To give them credit in this crisis, you can say perhaps too late, or you don't like the sort of way that they shift. But they have shown that they can be, if I can use a Malcolm Turnbull word, agile when they need to be. Well, that's a lesson from this pandemic, isn't it? With a, pan- with, a, with a global pandemic, you have to be flexible, agile and quick. Shall we bring in our guest, PK? <laughs> Jennifer Hewitt, National Affairs Columnist with the Australian Financial Review. Welcome back to the party room. Hi to both of you. And Jennifer, of course, you are in lockdown in Melbourne, as am I. Uh, it's obviously, we're living our best lives at the moment. Uh, business operators in Melbourne and nationally, as we know, are really not happy with the Victorian Premier Dan Andrews and the way that he's uh, designed Stage 4. They say it's dog's breakfast, it's messy about what, you know, the industry is getting closed down and how it works, permitted workers, all of that. But it's always going to be messy, isn't it? When you're drawing up lists and and making those determinations, it's a really difficult process. Have they bungled it? Well, I think it is going to be a very, very difficult process, you know, no matter what. Obviously, these things are going to be uh, incredibly complicated. People are going to be unhappy about it uh, and businesses are going to be confused. But notwithstanding that, I do think that there's been a lot of failure to really talk properly to the business community and and therefore you've had to have all sorts of changes and in quite significant areas. For example, the idea that um, uh, distribution and warehouses would have to cut their staff uh, already operating in a kind of COVID-safe manner by a third without having huge impacts on supply chains of, you know, crucial goods, not just for Victoria but for the whole country. I mean, I I find it pretty hard to really believe that they didn't think that through and talk it through um, with with people at, you know, Woolworths and Coles and things like that beforehand rather than having this scramble overnight. The Victorian Treasurer, Tim Pallas, says he's had 17 roundtables with business and there's 10 more happening this week, so they say they've been talking. I spoke with Innes Willocks from the Australian Industry Group this week who's branded it a complete mess, all of this, and he says, you know, the, the response needs to be dealt with in a proportionate and localised manner. But isn't that, the, isn't that the point? And this is the point Dan Andrews, the Premier, 
Blair keeps coming back with when he hears these criticisms about business is that, yes, you it might be difficult to operate with a third less of your workforce, but that's what he's got to make happen because he's got to get more Victorians off the streets. He's got to have fewer people going to work and moving around. That's the whole point of a stage four lockdown. It is going to have ramifications. Is he, you know, is he wrong? No, no. He, look, of course there will be ramifications and, of course, it is um, necessary um, in that sense to have that goal of reducing the number of people. But that's where the idea of being a little nuanced about how you do this is so, effect- uh, is so important. For example, you might have Woolworths with tens of thousands of people um, in, in Victoria, uh, but they've got a national warehouse with 4,500 people obviously already operating um, at a very efficient and COVID-safe level. Now, if you suddenly say to them you've actually got to reduce your staff by a third, that has flow-on effects all the way through the supply chain. So you're not saying, no, all the 44,000 should be allowed, but instead of saying, actually, you've got to take 1,500 out of that 4,500 people or more, then without without talking through that and what the implications of that are, I mean, I think it just kind of um, means that there has not been sufficient consultation beforehand, which is why you had the Prime Minister and the Federal Treasurer um, trying to get Tim Pallas to have more urgent meetings with businesses late last night. So are you saying you could get the same effect in terms of reducing the number of Melburnians going into work and moving about by taking some more off the, the shop floor in the Woolies supermarkets or something, whatever it is? Well, but yes, perhaps. I mean, we have to get the number of movements down. That's what Dan Andrews keeps saying. Now, of course you have to get the number of movements down, but the fact that you might have 1,500 more people in a warehouse you know, working and in, in under very kind of COVID safe conditions is is really important. And and it was also very unclear, for example, did they mean from a maximum or did they mean from what was operating last week when they were already reduced? All of those kind of confusing messages, I think have made it very difficult for um, business to operate, but more than that, to kind of keep operating and delivering crucial services um, to Australians. Yeah. And look, the, you know, I, I do experience it the way you've described it a bit, uh, Jennifer, because I think let's look at childcare, for instance. I cannot tell you how confusing that's been for parents because as workers about, you know, whether they'd be permitted workers or not, the list of who the permitted workers are, how to access childcare, whether they were allowed, whether they're allowed to have a babysitter in their house if they're working there. All of those rules have also been confusing and yes, it's a pandemic. Yes, they're making things up and there's late night meetings. Everyone respects that. But equally, just I myself have fielded literally like 10 calls from mum saying, do you know the rules? And I've had to say, no, they're not announced yet. People don't know how to plan their working week even. And that is really, really disruptive and stressful for people. So that's at that micro level, the, the sort of childcare system. If you look at the interaction between women and work and, and you know, economy-wide, the implications of that, I actually think they're quite huge and we can't underestimate the impact it has on people's ability to keep working. Yeah, but if they're trying to make these changes on the run, I mean, these things are happening very quickly. That's true. It is disruptive. That's true. But how do you do it in time? Because the health of, health advice is we have to, you know, we have to get more people, you have to stop people moving around now. How do you do that in time, in a timely way, without this disruption and confusion? How do you do that? 
Well, I think it's very hard, for example, to, to pick up Patricia's point, uh, the idea that you there were no forms available um, until last night about whether or not you, you could even get into mm. childcare is, is very, very disruptive and I think unnecessarily so. There's been, you know, days at least of them thinking about how this is going to, um, that they might have to move to this. Uh, and, and yet none of the forms were available. I think it's going to have a huge impact on women that, that child. I don't think it's a micro thing at all. I think it has a massive um, impact on, on women's ability to work from home in particular. Yeah, I, I think that's right, yeah. And and look, yeah, it's going to be messy and I do think the government is in what is a emergency crisis disaster situation and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want that job. Seriously, you couldn't give me that job. <laughs> it's, it's a horrific thing to have to manage. But either way, they're in this situation now and the the kind of flow-on effects from getting some of these calls wrong are huge. And the, the, you know, the way that this affects the national economy, which I want to go to with you now, Jennifer, because the Prime Minister has made some significant announcements in relation to the way the Victorian lockdown, the next phase, will affect the economy nationally. He says the official unemployment rate is expected to head back up to 13%. He's given the figures, the, the changed figures for the September GDP quarter in relation to uh, the Victorian shutdown, 10 to $11 billion. It's huge. Let's just talk about the unemployment rate itself. Uh, it just shows really that Treasury predictions really don't mean much, doesn't it? I mean, they change so quickly based on the way the health outbreak is playing out in real time. Yeah, I think that's right. And and in a sense, they're just kind of best guesses um, based on the uh, information available at the time. Um, and they're, they're always just kind of best guesses, but now more so than ever. And you saw that when... Uh, when the Treasurer Frydenberg gave his update and, and it was basically out of date, you know, within a, within a couple of days because of Victoria. I think the problem now is going to be that even those estimates uh, of 250,000 job losses, for example, are going to prove um, very um, overly optimistic. I think the, uh, the Federal Treasury is suggesting it could be up to 400,000 and even that, you know, who, who would know really? A lot of it depends on, on whether or not this just goes for six weeks um, and what the impact has on people who can actually not only withstand that six weeks, but then kind of start up again. It is not going to be as if we're going to go back even to what we had um, at, at, uh, in July. And in a state of disaster, I mean, that is the real long, long-lasting disaster, isn't it? Unemployment. We've seen, you know, unconnected to this virgin um, come to life again, it looks like, with 3,000 fewer employees under this lockdown. I spoke to the chief of West Farmers, um, and West Farmers have actually done quite well overall from this pandemic because they own Bunnings, where a lot of people running to the hardware store, office works, a lot of people working from home needing their products. But even a big, profitable company like that is only going to pay its work Force and there's 25,000 of them, two weeks salary, then they're going to have to go on JobKeeper after this. So, you know, this this is really major impacts on people's lives. That's not counting, as you say, all those businesses that don't come back at all. And we just don't really have a handle on that, have a picture of that at all. No, I don't think, I think that's true. And I, and I think also that um, despite the people are willing to give um, the government slack and give authorities slack, um, and, and, and acknowledge they're trying to do the best they can. But I do think the repeated errors of the Victorian government right from the beginning um, have, have really destroyed a lot of the kind of trust 
in the government to kind of get it right. And I think that would also affect very much the confidence of small business owners to say, well, we'll just struggle through this somehow. The federal government is obviously going to try and and assist. Um, they're, they're, at the moment, they are trying to tweak JobKeeper and to, to therefore make it you know, more uh, flexible for people to get more access to money, uh, which will be absolutely crucial uh, in Victoria. Uh, but for many people, that won't be enough either. There's another disaster unfolding, of course, in Victoria, and that's in relation to aged care and the outbreak of coronavirus, the outbreak in aged care homes, the handling of that issue, and obviously the death rate we're seeing, which will increase. We've been told it will increase, and that's every day there's a daily toll which we, we are experiencing in real time and is really difficult for the families who are losing loved ones. But I think as a community too, it sort of sends us into a collective state of sadness to see this around us. We're hoping to avoid this, but we haven't been able to. The Premier said yesterday he's working with the federal government and it seems to be stabilising. But Jennifer, this has highlighted problems that were already there in aged care before the pandemic struck. Labor is trying to pressure the government on this, saying that the federal government is to blame. They are in charge of aged care. They are responsible for this system. Yes, the outbreak was happening in Victoria, but it's aged care that they run. So who is responsible? Yes, well, that's because aged care is one of those um, areas where there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, yes, the federal government um, is responsible for it. And there's you can argue that they should have been much more diligent in making sure in some cases that standards were maintained. But a lot of the time um, you, you also get, you know, the state authorities involved. And so it, it just becomes um, a, a very kind of messy thing to make sure that everybody's doing the right thing. But but more importantly than that, of course, is the fact that's why we've got um, a Royal Commission into aged care uh, as yet another inquiry uh, into this. And that is that aged care is very, very expensive to run properly and make sure everybody gets the right level of care. And nobody really wants to pay for it. And that's been a kind of continuing problem. And I'm not sure um, this just makes it that much worse, of course. Um, but we haven't actually come to the fundamental problem of who pay, pays uh, for the really quality standards that people would like to see. And there will have to be a reckoning of this, the impact of this and the handling of this on aged care in Victoria after this is all over. Um, we've already got a Royal Commission into aged care, but we have seen the Federal Minister, Richard Colbeck, this week appear before the Parliamentary Committee. There's a sort of a standing committee at the moment looking at the impact of this pandemic across a range of of areas and ministers are being called before it. So some work of parliament is going on and some accountability. But this week, the minister didn't want to uh, make public the names of the aged care homes. There's more than 100 of them in Victoria that have had COVID cases because he, he said he'd happily name some of them, the major ones with the major outbreaks, but he didn't want to name them all because he didn't want to do them unnecessary reputational damage. Is that is that good enough? No, I don't think it is good enough at all, and uh, I think he's going to regret making comments like that. Uh, but of course, the other argument would be that anybody in those homes would they'd have relatives immediately demanded they be moved to uh, hospitals, and uh, and they're obviously nervous about that. And then you get the state government, which, for example, did not want to stop elective surgery. Um, quickly enough to move many people out of aged care into hospitals in, in, in homes where there were big outbreaks. So that's what I mean about the kind of the breakdown in cooperation between different levels of government. Jennifer, before we let you go, I just want to get your insights into, I know you talked to a lot of people too, 
into the sort of way that that relationship is going because I feel like Scott Morrison and Daniel Andrews have been going out of their way to tell us that they're talking all the time, they're working closely together because in the background there is pressure, particularly on Morrison, I think, from his side of politics to muscle up, if you like, or to draw a line because they feel like and Daniel Andrews is kind of, you know, Victoria is in a state of disaster and that Victoria and the Premier should take responsibility for that. How big is that tension? I think there's huge tension um, and Morrison is doing his best to keep it under control because he knows it would be very, very um, unpopular politically and also actually wouldn't have um, much effect uh, in terms of trying to improve a, what is a disastrous um, situation. But there's no doubt that there has been incredible frustration amongst the federal government and federal government ministers, uh, despite the fact they can't say so publicly, um, at, the, at the Victorian government's repeated uh, failures and repeated refusal to, um, to ask or accept greater federal assistance from the beginning when this far, was far more manageable. Jennifer, it's terrific to have you on The Party Room. Thank you so much for joining us, both you and PK in Melbourne in lockdown. Good luck. Thank you. And that's it from us from The Party Room. Just a little shout out. It's such a hard time for Year 12s. I feel it very, very strongly because my niece Electra is in Year 12 and this was the year she was most looking forward to. And if you're a Melbourne lockdown student, it is not the year you planned for. She's now going to be finishing Year 12 realistically from home. She's gone back to school. She's gone back home. It's been such a hard journey, and she's just one example. It's so difficult for them. So many of those rituals are gone, uh, but I don't think they'll be gone forever. They'll always be the class of 2020. Unlike my year or your year, Fran, their year is going to be remembered forever for their resilience, for all of the work they've done. They will have bright futures, I hope, still. But I do feel, particularly for that cohort in my own state, more than anywhere else in the country. I know all U12s have suffered, but I think right now they're feeling it really acutely in Melbourne. Yeah, very, very tough, very disappointing for them all. And all I can say is don't give up hope. You've got to keep some element of hope in your life. PK, see ya. See you, Fran. Everyone was looking for Nicola Gobbo, the woman who became known as Lawyer X. The woman at the centre of Victoria's biggest legal scandal. Since going into hiding, the only interview she's done is with the ABC. And now we can tell her full story. People were going to be murdered. She was working both sides of the fence. I will make a point of holding those who did this to account. The Informer, a gripping new season of the hit podcast, Trace. Hear it on the ABC Listen app.